everybody. Welcome to Quote Me, Episode 4. I'm Cohen. I'm John. I'm Anna. I'm Ian. And today we are talking about comic book legend Dwayne McDuffie. I put a shot to your system. John, tell us. Can do, Cohen. On today's episode of Quote Me, as Cohen said, we're going to be discussing the life and achievements of Dwayne McDuffie, a powerful voice in the world of comics and animation. Dwayne was born on February 20th, 1962, to Leroy and Edna Hawkins McDuffie. McDuffie had three siblings, an elder brother named Brian and a younger brother named Daryl, who predeceased him. He also has another half-sibling, comedian and actor Keegan-Michael Key, through his father. Dwayne considered himself a proto-nerd and attended Roper, a local school for gifted children. He attended Michigan University at the age of 13. After high school, he returned to Michigan and majored in English and physics. He graduated in 1983 and then, growing disillusioned with his career path and how his scientific work was being used, stepped away from science and drifted for a year. After that directionless year, he enrolled in film school at NYU. In 1984, after enrolling in NYU, Dwayne became friends with Greg Wright, who worked at Marvel. Greg helped Dwayne get an interview with Marvel, which led to his employment with the company and began the writing career that would go on to touch so many people in so many various mediums and forms. Okay, so to start things out with Dwayne's writing career, we're going to talk about the Marvel years. After uh, Greg Wright got Dwayne a job at Marvel, Dwayne was working in the office. He's trying out a lot of pitches. And for some reason, there was an editor working with Marvel at the time who just had it out for Dwayne. Anytime Dwayne would submit a pitch, he would shoot it down, and it just wouldn't happen. Uh, Dwayne was having to like go around this guy and work uh, with a lot of other people under the guy's notice to try and get pitches in. And this finally culminated in Dwayne's first major work as a writer, uh, which was the comic series Damage Control. Uh, are you guys all familiar with that one? Yes. Yes. I think um, a lot of people will know Damage Control from there was a there was a joke about it in one of the recent Marvel movies, wasn't there? So, really, really cool. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you keeping score at home, John is a major comic book fan. Uh, animation, <laughs> yeah. the books, the movies, the, the whole thing. Um, and Damage Control actually was introduced into the Marvel Cinematic Universe in Spider-Man: Homecoming. Uh, it was set after the Battle of New York in the prologue sequence, which is where the Avengers first formed in the movie continuity. And Damage Control was set up to clean up the messes from the battles between superheroes, supervillains, alien invasions, all that stuff. And that was largely carried over from the comics, which was Dwayne's original premise. He set it up so that he could use it to kind of like critique superhero comics. Like, what is the realistic fallout of like these mythical like godlike beings like clashing in the street how does that affect everyday folks just trying to commute around new york city and this, sorry i didn't mean to no no, no you, go ahead this is so important to me because i always get like secondhand embarrassment from like movies when they like destroy everything and i'm like who's gonna pay for that Damage control. <laughs> damage control. Damage control. Damage control. So it happens so much, and especially in Homecoming, you like see throughout, like he like smuggles onto like a damage control truck that's going to a depot in Washington, and <laughs> really? it's got like all these like pieces from battles in the other movies. There's like a head from an Ultron robot from one of the Avengers movies. Uh, they're, they're constantly referencing these different battles. Uh, one person had like retrofitted gear from Crossbones and Captain America: Civil War. It was, um, 
It was a comic book fan's dream, just an Easter egg extravaganza, if you will. Nice. That's nice, awesome. Nice. And this was kind of like Dwayne's first real attempt to kind of get in there and sort of ground comics in a, a way that was um, realistic and that wasn't really being explored. And we're going to see that the more that we talk, that Dwayne was really trying to um, humanize uh, these like larger than life stories in his in his fiction, and we'll we'll see that over the arc of things. and And Damage Control was a good introduction point for that. And then his his next big work at Marvel was Deathlock, right? That's right. The Souls of Cyberfolk was the overarching name of, of that particular arc. Yes, and um, it took him it took some arguing to get that name through, because it was a reference to W. E. B. Du Bois. The souls of black folk um and a lot of people didn't get the reference so they were like this name is too clunky it's too long like no one's gonna you know comic books are supposed to be smart snippy quick and he's like no no like hear me out this the whole idea of Deathlock is this sort of double reality that he has to face um i do have a quote here it's a little bit long but it's from the souls of black folk and i think it really encompasses the ideas that Dwayne was trying to get across. So let me go ahead and read this. Um, After the Egyptian and Indian, the Greek and Roman, the Teuton and the Mongolian, the black person is a sort of seventh son, born with a veil and gifted with second sight in this American world, a world which yields him no true self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of the world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his two-ness, an American, a black person, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconcilable strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body, whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. And I think this is super important because it talks a lot about this character as, um, remind me, is Deathlock, is he the cyborg guy? Deathlock is the cyborg guy. Okay, just trying to remember. We're going to be talking about a lot of varied like characters across the sci-fi superhero fantasy spectrum in today's episode. But Deathlock, like, he was making a lot of machinery um, without really realizing what it was for. Mm-hmm. And then he eventually realized that they were using it to, was it for war? Weapons. Wep- yes, weapons. weapons development. And for, for those of you who may not be familiar, Deathlock isn't the most well-known character. They actually did like a, a version of him on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. during its first season. Oh, yeah. Um, but... Again, if you haven't seen that, I mean, he's not really a character that pops up uh, in the adaptations outside of comics quite that often. Right. But the whole point of this character is that he was a good man. And when he realized what he was doing was hurting people, he was like, I want out. And they ended up like tricking him and like he became his own machinery. Like he, he turned into a cyborg. He's this Terminator kind yeah. of like character. Very similar to Iron Man. Yeah, like yeah. Stark Industries. So, so now he's like he's very you know he doesn't want to fight he doesn't want to hurt people and now he's like forced to he's forced in this body that is like meant to hurt people, and so his two-ness is that he's very much a pacifist and now he's been put into a war machine. 
And that's a little bit of Dwayne himself coming out in the character. Dwayne was like an avid pacifist. Um, it was a big, important part of who he was as a person. And I don't think we've like said it out loud yet, but just to fully disclaim, Dwayne McDuffie was, in fact, a, a black man. Uh, the black man's experience in America and the, the history of, of their struggle uh, is a big part of his writing and what he tries to get across in things. And we're going to see that repeat a lot throughout the, the course of the, the episode today. Well, and that's one of the things that I was going to point out is that I remember reading an interview where McDuffie said that he put a lot of himself into Deathlock in that kind of sense of, like, he didn't realize that what he was doing was harmful. Like, when he was being forced into writing, like, white characters that fit with the mainstream, at, especially at that time, being forced into that box because every idea he has is shut down, but he's leagues above his co his co-writers in terms of talent, which I, which we will get into, um, to see that kind of like dichotomy of black excellence and being held back. A hundred percent. And we sort of touched on it in the intro, um, and I'll, I'll say it again. Dwayne was taking college courses at the age of 13. Um, I've actually seen two different things. One said 13 and one said 10, so I'm not entirely sure what is the correct age. The point is, is he was in college as a child. Yes. As a yes. physics major, which I can yeah. do now. No. So like. No, 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 no. <laughs> Not at all. Dwayne was a brilliant man. He really was. I think there was more to, I think there Big was move. more to Deathlock. I think there was actually an experience that McDuffie had where he was doing something very similar, where he was making something with, doing something with physics, and then they stole his ideas. Yeah. He, he was. Ther- um, thermal? Thermal couplings. Yes. So oh, yeah. he uh, was majoring in English and physics. And uh, he, he got his degrees. He graduated. He was working on this research. And they were actually used in the guidance systems for missiles. Yep. Wow. And he that's why he became super disillusioned. And we're actually going to see that play out uh, in our next segment as well. There's going to be another character where he sort of like tackles similar themes to Deathlock. Uh, I'll save that little bit for that section. But... Um, it's super conflicted with his pacifist ideals, and you can really see him starting to like take a crack at that through fiction in Deathlock, trying to sort through it. Uh, and Deathlock also was inspired by The Thing yes. in Fantastic Four, which is actually one of McDuffie's favorite comics. Um, and the, what he has to say about this sort of character archetype is that it is a man alienated by his surface appearance. Um, so he's taking this and I quote, grim and gritty hero, and like doing his sort of take on it. Um, but what he, he does this with all of his heroes, all of his characters, is he tries to make someone who is a part of himself so that he can like make the better version of himself. That's right. Um, so this character in particular was really important to him because he felt like this character was morally superior to himself. Right that ultimate idealized yes. optimum man sort of thing. Yes. And that's one of the things that like contrary to the thing where it's that idealized person who's ostracized because of what they look like. Um, one of the things that was brought up about Deathlock is that like this is a flawed character. Yeah. He's not just it's not gonna be a model minority um, like stereotype. Right. It's gonna be a realistic Description, or I guess representation of what a person actually is, because that is another thing that McDuffie tried to fight was having like the quirky sidekick or like 
the brain and not allowing black characters to just exist as people would? Well, I think, yes, that. But he was also very particular about making characters very humanized. Yeah. Like, he was, like, he doesn't like stereotypes at all. He doesn't like these sort of um, the archetypes of his time. He was very much, like, we need to make characters that are relatable and interesting and unique. And that's partially what we're going to talk about later on when he works on Justice League, is that he took this show where it was, like, all of these characters, this very large cast where anyone could have said any of the lines and made it so that they all had very unique voices. Mm-hmm. And that's something that carries that he carries throughout all of his career is that he's very invested in the characters themselves. Yeah, for sure. That's right. It's, it's definitely about the character development. And one thing I, I would like to say while we're kind of talking about this, just to get into the, the politics between Marvel and DC. Oh, boy. So, <laughs> but but it, it does loop back in. There, This is done with purpose, I promise. It's okay. not just me, like, ad nauseum going on about comics. So the idea behind Marvel, when Stan Lee and Jack Kirby started creating this interconnected universe, is that Marvel could be the world outside your window. DC Comics, the distinguished competition is what they call them, you know, as an aside. <laughs> They're... Um, sort of like these these godlike figures they're like perfect or they're like these paragons like Cohen was saying later on when they were working on Justice League it's like all the characters could say the same line and it wouldn't sound out of character it's just powers yeah. and costumes because they're all so perfect Jack and Stan's idea with the Marvel Universe was to like depict these really flawed human beings with superpowers and showing them grappling with it and struggling with it yeah um it seems, and based on our research, that Dwayne was a really big Marvel Comics fan. I think he was a big comics fan in general, but he really responded to Don McGregor's Black Panther run. Black Panther yeah. was the, the first uh, black superhero in comics. He was introduced during Fantastic Four uh, when Jack Kirby and Stan Lee first started the book. Dwayne is also a super literary guy, so he's like taking that very literary mind and this interest in comics and taking Deathlock and like making this very Marvel style character who yeah. is very, very flawed, very, uh, very troubled, um, but also like making him a black character, which there was a shortage of in comics. Uh, comics has been a, a mostly white medium for most of its existence. So here in, in this very early part of his career, he's he's starting to try and like address that and to create these these interesting characters who are uh, black or BIPOC, but who aren't necessarily like super reflective of all black people, which, as Anna said, is something that he would go on to try and combat his entire career in writing. Yeah, something he said was like, when you have a world full of white characters, then not no single character will represent the entirety of white people but when you have one single or like a handful of BIPOC and black characters then that character becomes like the voice of the people right which is how we create these stereotypes and we create characters that kind of suck so yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. he what he really wanted to do was just create a world that was more reflective of our own and because of this, he was not a fan of Luke Cage because of the stereotypes. And angry. it's it's original black exploitation roots. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, later on, uh, once Milestone starts, he actually parodies Luke Cage in an issue of Icon. There's a, a character called Buck Buck T Wild Mercenary Man. 
Uh, <laughs> Look, T. Wilde. If you look at the artwork, it's very clearly a Luke Cage parody. Like he's oh, got the bright it. yellow outfit, and uh, it's um, <laughs> it's really something. Dwayne did right. not care for Luke Cage at all. No, no. Dwayne did kind of have like a sense of humor to. Like, that's what drove so a lot funny. of his progress. Yeah, and I think Ian has um, a letter one that of he his wrote most, to Marvel. His most famous examples of him being sassy with his employer. Yeah. So to to tee, to tee this up for Ian, um, as we've said before, Dwayne was constantly like butting up against editorial. Once he actually got a voice and was writing, he was actively speaking out about some of the ways that people of color were portrayed in Marvel and like just trying to, to dispel some of those stereotypes. And this letter was written to Marvel's editorial board. So this was a satirical pitch for a new ongoing series. Um, it was drafted December 13th, 1989. And he wrote to his uh, executives, in the past year, 25% of all African-American superheroes appearing in the Marvel Universe possess skateboard-based superpowers. In an attempt to remain on the cutting edge of comics, I hereby propose a new series that will fully exploit this exciting new trend. When a group of teenage black men find cosmic-powered skateboards, their lives are forever changed. A team of distinct characters joins together, swearing an oath to use their powers for good. Rocket Racer, a black eye on a skateboard. Night Thrasher, a black eye on a skateboard. Dark Wheelie, a black eye on a skateboard. And their leader, the mysterious black eye on a skateboard, known only as that mysterious black eye on a skateboard. <laughs> this is a surefire hit as it contains all of these popular elements, circa 1974 clothing and hairstyles. Bizarre speech patterns unrecognizable by any member of any culture on the planet. A smart white friend to help them out of the trouble they get into. They're heroes who could be like you, if you were black, I mean. They're on skateboards. They have an attractive white female friend to calm them down when they get too excited. Face it, Pilgrim, this one's got it all. Have I made my point? <laughs> It I'm, is so I'm, epic. It's so funny. And he, he never got fired. Mm -mm. He left of his own accord. <laughs> but that, that just shows you the kind of things that he's like trying to, to, to fight against. And just, just knowing kind of like the story of comics and the history of comics, uh, attempts at diversity within the medium are often Never extreme. Well. They did, they're very two-dimensional. They're very based in stereotypes and like sort of the, the white perception of, of that group. And uh, so many of them have aged extremely poorly. And yeah. sure. there, there have been attempts in, in, modern, um, in modern comics for people who are part of the same group as these characters to sort of like reclaim them and refurbish them and make them more dimensionalized characters. So Ian, I know you've done some, some research on kind of like the background of comics and just to kind of give everybody like a better idea of like just the, the weight and, and depiction of the, the historical depiction of these characters that Dwayne was trying to combat. Uh, would you mind before we like move into like his his further efforts, kind of like going through that timeline and just showing how like diversity in comics was like represented when it first started versus how it was when Dwayne came on the scene? Sure. So first off, I would say that it was pretty non-existent. Um, there wasn't a lot of diversity, uh, and if there were um, black people in comics, they were a lot of times used for comic relief. 
So the first black character made his debut in 1934. Uh, his name was Lothar. And before him, black people only appeared in comics, uh, really in forms of racism. In the 1940s and the 1950s, uh, black comic book characters' roles changed a little bit. They started to transition from comic relief to helpful sidekick. And then in 1947, a gentleman named Oren C. Evans, who was a news reporter, started the first exclusively black published comic that was written, drawn, and created by African Americans for the black community. It was entitled All Negro Comics, and it only lasted a single issue. It was popular in the black community and brought about characteristic characters such as Ace Harlem and Lion Man, among others. And these characters are often considered early black heroes. They didn't fit the tropes that the white writers at the time were writing for black superheroes. These people were intelligent. They knew what they were doing. And although it didn't last long, it did have a huge impact on comics. In 1954, Atlas Comics, which would become Marvel, published Jungle Tales, which included Waku, Prince of Bantu. He was smart, enlightened, an African tribal chief who showed bravery and courage and was widely seen as the first black mainstream comic star. In 1965, Lobo became the first African-American with his own comic book series, even though it only lasted two issues. And then the following year in 1966, Stan Lee created the first black superhero when in Marvel's Fantastic Four issue number 52, the Black Panther made his first appearance. Only a few years later, in 1969, Stan Lee once again created a black superhero when Samuel Wilson, a.k.a. Falcon, was introduced in Captain America. He was African-American and could fly using metal wings and could talk to and control birds. He would go on to become Captain America, which is a huge accomplishment. And during these first early few decades, and actually it continued into the 1990s, all black characters had to deal with racism in the real world. Like John was saying, most publishers either stopped selling these comics or wouldn't put them on their shelves because they were racist to white people. This led to poor sales and only a few issues for most of these early superheroes that should have ran longer. It wasn't until the civil rights movement in the 1960s until comic book publishers recognized that they were ignoring a completely untapped market and they wanted uh, young black kids to read their comics. I want to talk real quick about Black Panther, like we mentioned earlier, because he provided such a defining moment in Duffy's life. Black Panther is probably the most famous and the first black superhero with superhuman abilities in mainstream comics. When Stan Lee and Jack Kirby created him, he originally appeared as a supporting character in the Fantastic Four, and he wouldn't receive his own comic series until 1973. But in a 1990 interview, Kirby explained, I came up with Black Panther because I realized I had no black people in my strips. I suddenly discovered that I had a lot of black readers, and my friends were black, and here I was ignoring them because I was associating with everyone else. This would become a game changer in a defining moment for black superhero portrayals in comics. The Black Panther was completely different than the normal stereotypical renderings of black people. Not only was he of African descent, but he was poised, had extreme physical training, and was successful in protecting his people and his kingdom from destruction. 
He was also the richest superhero and he had access to advanced Wakandan technology. And this was a complete 180 from the common black exploitation characters of the time. And going on with the Black Panther superhero, I think that's part of the reason he wanted to do more of those individualized black superheroes. And that's why he broke off from Marvel and joined, created Milestone. People do point to him as the man who opened the door for black creators in comics. I mean, because there were, he wasn't the first one. No, there was a few. But he was the one who, like, really paved the way. Because and I think it had a lot to do with his humor and the way that he worked. Like, people really respected him. There was a really great um, documentary that we all watched where everyone only had the nicest things to say about him. They were like, we loved working with him. We were so excited to get in the writing room with him. No one had anything bad to say. No. Uh, even when Dwayne, like, disagreed with a script or had quibbles with it, he would help them like take it apart and they'd talk through it and he'd give really good solid notes on yeah. everything. Uh, just a just a stand up swell guy. I can't remember who it was, but I remember him telling this story where he got on his bike and he rode over to McDuffie's house just to like show him a script he's been for working the Ben on. Ten maybe? I think so. I think, oh, I think it was, it was for Ben the Ten. 10. Like, but that's just how much like his community respected him. I, I can't say that they didn't see him as black because, of course, they did. But I think just his respectability and intelligence was what opened the door for not only him, but a lot of other creators. For sure. For sure. And that's how we get to Milestone Media. Real quick before we, we transition. Yeah. Yesterday, last night, I found out something so cool that tied in with us, and I was really excited about it. So... Um, Black Panther, uh, for a huge portion of his publishing history, was written exclusively by white people. Uh, the creative teams were, were typically 100% white. During Don McGregor's Black Panther run, the one that Dwayne like, cites as being such a major influence on him, uh, the first black member of like a Black Panther creative team came on board. His name was... Um, I believe it was Billy Graham. Um, yes, that is... That is correct. That is correct. Yep. Billy Graham came on board as penciler and did some beautiful artwork for the series. So on the way home last night, I was listening to an audiobook, and it's this guy. He's like read the entire like catalog of Marvel comics from like the first issue of Fantastic Four all the way up to Marvel Legacy in 2017. Like uh, just the width and breadth, the thousands and thousands of comics. It's, it's an insane amount of work. He was talking about Black Panther, uh, the section that I was in, and he was talking about how Billy Graham was the first black creative co-creator to be involved with the Black Panther book. It was during Don McGregor's run, which was one that influenced Dwayne so much. He went on to say that the first black writer to actually extensively write Wakanda was Dwayne when he was writing Deathlock. And I, I thought that was such a cool thing. And this was before Christopher Priest in the 90s like came on and like wrote his like definitive Black Panther run that sort of crystallized the character as we know him now that's been um, so pervasive and prevalent like in the Black Panther movie and in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, and I just thought that was such an awesome thing that Dwayne was inspired by it and then later on got the chance to write it himself as the first black writer. And I, I just thought that was super cool. 
So, as we were saying before, such a big part of Dwayne's life as a writer became trying to break down the idea of characters as a monolith for, for the race that they came from, that they stand for all members of their race or background. So, to combat that, Dwayne decided if he couldn't get Marvel to do it, if nobody else was going to do it, he would do it himself. And this led to the foundation and creation of Milestone Media. All right, so let's start digging into Milestone. So as we said before, Dwayne decided if nobody else was going to do it, it was up to him to do it. In 1991, he created a business to maintain creative and editorial control of the characters. He created, with Dennis Cowan, Derek T. Dingle, and Michael Davis, Milestone Media. He used the money that he received from Deathlock and a 400-page story Bible that he created with his co-creators to found Milestone Comics. And again, the idea behind all of this was to break the idea of race as a monolith. And the foundation of Milestone was built on four different groups of characters. We had Icon and Rocket, Static, Hardware, and the Blood Syndicate. Where would you guys like to start? How do do we want to start talking about first? Let's dig into this thing. I want to talk about Static. All right, Static static it is. (laughs) Um, I I did try to find and read these comics. We don't have them available at the library right now, Um, and they're not available online, or else I I couldn't find them. But I watched Static Shock a lot as a kid, and one of McDuffie's goals is to write characters that they're not the black hero. They're just a hero, you know, just another character. And I think that he did a great job of that because me as a kid watching Static Shock, I was like, I love this guy. Oh, Static is a wonderful character. He's so exuberant and he just, he enjoys being a superhero. He's not some, some gritty tortured character. A lot of times in comics, you've you've got this stereotype of the, Oh, this dark and terrible thing has happened to me. And now I'm going to fight crime because I'm traumatized. Spider-Man like, very comical. He was based on Spider-Man. Dwayne was like, I want my equivalent of Spider-Man. And actually, Static was originally envisioned as debuting as a Marvel character when Dwayne was working there. And when Milestone became a thing and they were working on the story Bible, he imported a lot of these ideas. And one of the things that you'll really see looking at the Milestone collection of characters, uh, this was some of Dwayne's most personal work. And he really put a lot of himself into the milestone characters. I think he said, I'm trying to find the quote now, but he was saying that like Static Shock was basically him as a kid. Like loud mouth nerd. Yes. Gonna he, get himself into trouble. He like, described himself as a proto nerd. He yes, was just he did super nerdy guy. <laughs> and that's Virgil. Virgil to a T. Yeah, absolutely. Um there's, there's some conflicting information. In one instance, uh, I read that Virgil Hawkins' name is actually a tribute to um, an African-American character, or not character, but an actual African-American person, uh, historical figure. Uh, in another case, uh, it turns out that his mother's maiden name is Hawkins. Uh, so there's a, there's a confluence of things there in Virgil's creation. I do have a McDuffie quote um People write about themselves, basically, fundamentally, no matter what character you're writing, there has to be a core of you in it. For sure. Yeah. Just like we've talked about on other podcasts. And you can really, really see that with Virgil, especially McDuffie as a young man. 
So I think people are familiar with Static Shock to some degree. He's a teenage black kid who has electric-based powers. Um, I think probably a lot of us, especially people our age in their 20s and 30s, probably saw the show. Um, Out of all the Milestone characters, he's the one who's had the most mainstream exposure. Absolutely. All right, so so Static, who's Virgil, um, in the comics, it's Static and Frida, his best friend Frida. And it talks a lot about the black community and the Jewish community and how those communities were not always on the best of terms. And, well, Frida was Jewish, so a lot of the conversation in the comic was how those relations played out. Right. And at one point, it... it um, gets to the point of basically a street war like it becomes very violent and the the point that McDuffie is trying to get across is that this is the real world sometimes and like Frida and Virgil as these teenagers are just in the middle of it um and a lot of his characters kind of are in the same boat where they're like forced into being superheroes or having powers and suddenly, like, not knowing what to do with that, um, which is how we get to the rest of the universe. So you have this this gang war sort of conflict, and over the course of it, like, you've got all these conflicting fac- factions that are converging on this location, and there's an accident. Like, all these... Is, is it chemical gas? It is chemical yes. gas. Chemical gas is released, and everybody in who's there is exposed to it. And it all, like, affects their DNA differently. So everybody, like, has, like, a unique mutation that arises because of this. And they're all referred to as bang babies after that. The event itself is called the Big Bang, and all of the recipients of powers, people who were affected by it, are called the bang babies. Whether you're hero or villain. Right. And that's kind of like the the unifying element of the Dakotaverse, for the most part. That's right. They're all in Dakota. Right. The city of Dakota, not the state. (laughs) Right. Dakota Dakota City. City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, like, all these other characters have stemmed from this event. So, Icon is a very conservative gentleman who, I believe, he was in politics? Um, right. That's Icon right. is this super powerful alien who uh, came to Earth like uh, Superman did in the comics. Uh, he's actually been on Earth a lot longer. Since the Civil War. Since, yes. That's right. Um, and he keeps pretending to be his own, like, son or grandson. Frederick. Fre- right. Fre- William Freeman was... I I Augusta. Believe- Augustus Freeman. <laughs> Augustus Freeman. <laughs> Let's all say names until we get there. Might as well. He experienced the, the, the width and breadth of uh, black history in America uh, himself from the time that he landed to the present. And unlike Dwayne himself... Icon is a strong black conservative figure. And he doesn't want anyone to know about his powers, so he doesn't use them until one day a bunch of teenagers are like, we're going to break into the big fancy house. Right. And to scare them away, he starts flying around. And, of course, you know, they run off. But Raquel, who becomes the main character, um, goes back to his house and she's like, you've got these superpowers. You can use them for good. You can use them to, like, help the town. And why aren't you? And, you know, he's a grumpy old conservative man. He's like, I don't want to. 
Right. She has this work to do. She's this young liberal counterpoint to kind of this this jaded older conservative yes. figure, and that friction between them informs their partnership moving forward. They become Icon and Rocket. It's sort of like Batman and Robin, except it's sort of like a Superman figure. It's playing on a lot of these different established comic book ideas and putting a, a new spin on them, but it's like, in a different direction. McDuffie put a lot of regular um, dilemmas that people go through. He didn't want just aliens coming to Earth and us having to defend him. He wanted a lot of issues that people felt uncomfortable tackling at the time, and he wanted those in his characters to make him more relatable. So, for example, Rocket deals with teenage pregnancy. Rocket does deal with teenage pregnancy, and that's something that you're not going to find happening in comics more, it's more so now, more, much more of a common thing, but up to that point, this would have been a barrier-breaking thing. And that's a very real issue that a lot of teens have to grapple with, but you wouldn't see that reflected in comics from DC and Marvel. And a lot of those executives that were shooting him down at DC and Marvel were him wanting to bring issues like that into comics, and they wanted to stay clear of it as well. That's right. There's there's a, a quote from him somewhere where he's saying, you know, there's just only so many supervillains and things like that that you can fight. Uh, it's, it's the everyday things that really ground and help humanize these characters and make them feel fleshed out and dimensional. Cohen, you got a point. I do have a point. Um, Something that they also really wanted to focus on in Milestone is not just men. A lot of comics up to that point were just all of these men and, you know, like a handful of, like, women sidekicks. But Milestone was like, no, we want to talk about, like, all different kinds of people, all different kinds of genders. We want to talk about Asian Americans and Latinas, Latinos and women and just focus on those things that haven't been talked about enough because... They wanted to invite more readers, and, and they wanted more people to be able to relate to their stories. Did McDuffie ever get into disability representation? Because I think that would be a really interesting direction to take comics in, especially with like modern conversations about ableism. I think um, Deathlock was a little bit of that, just because he was like trapped in a cyborg body, but right. it wasn't explicit, I would say. No. Uh as far as that kind of representation in comics, it, it is pretty lacking. Uh, I can just think of a couple of, like, Deathlock, um, Cyborg at DC is a pretty, like, major recent example of yeah. that. Uh, Professor Xavier mm-hmm. from the yeah. X-Men comics. Okay, yeah. It's, it's something that is there, but not nearly as much as it could be. And I feel like that'd be such a, not necessarily an easy thing to do, at least not an easy thing to do well, but I think it would be so valuable to the comic book community. Like, For sure. Yeah. That's right up McD- McDuffie's road is yeah. inclusivity. It, yeah. It would have been great to hear his take on that. I think if he had lived a little bit longer, I, I hate saying that, but if he had like yeah. lived into like the later 2000s, he probably would have taken up a challenge like that. I for sure. It, it seems like he's always trying to like find and identify the missing pieces and then try and find a way to, to fill those in and, and bring that representation to the fore. And I could totally see him tackling something like that. Blood Syndicate, that was pretty big on bringing in different ethnicities, correct? I didn't get that far into the Blood Syndicate in my research. 
So Blood Syndicate is something really different than other properties that you've seen in comics. And it stems out of the, the Big Bang event that led to the creation of the, the other um, superhuman characters in this universe. So the Blood Syndicate is made up of remnants of some of the gangs that participated in the, the Paris Island event where the Big Bang started. Uh, these characters were each part of individual gangs, they survive, they have the powers, and then over the course of it, they combined together and formed this team that was working to protect Paris Island uh, from other characters. And their name, the Blood Syndicate, is actually a composite of the names of the different gangs that comprise them originally. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, can you give, me, give us an example of the names? Uh, sure. So the Blood Syndicate derives its name because uh, it's made up of different members of groups that were originally the Paris Island Bloods and the Force Syndicate. So these groups combine together to form the Blood Syndicate. And that's kind of the origin of that. And they're working together as a gang to protect Paris Island. Gotcha. The other big character that came out of Milestone was Hardware, which... For McDuffie was a representation of his self-doubt. Hardware was not a stereotype, but he was leaning to more towards the angry black character because it was a conversation with the fear that McDuffie had in himself. McDuffie was a big man. He was very tall. He had a very like intimidating demeanor six about six. him. Yeah. Well, people were intimidated by him. Just doesn't necessarily mean he's He's not a scary guy. He was not a scary guy, but he was Gentle a big giant. guy and he didn't smile a lot. So people kind of looked at him and they're like, you know, they think he's scary. And so this this character, Hardware, was that manifestation of like, what if I do actually become this scary man that everyone thinks I am? And to kind of like touch on several things that we've talked about. Uh, before, hardware is kind of like the flip side to Deathlock as mm-hmm. a character. Deathlock was sort of this representation of Dwayne's ideal self, whereas hardware represented, like Cohen was saying, his self-doubt and who he was afraid that he could be. Yeah. And these two different paradigms were rooted in that experience he had where his his research as a, physici- as a physicist was being used for the missile guidance systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very much something that we can see between both characters, where their research as, as scientists is being used by this corrupt um, military-industrial complex to create weapons of war, uh, things that they don't agree with. And then it's sort of like a very different approach. You've got this pacifist character who's like the ultimate analog of Dwayne versus Hardware who's much more aggressive and like mm. is taking the fight to this guy. Um, it's really interesting kind of like comparing and contrasting the two different characters and the different approaches to the story. And you can see like how much that must have weighed on Dwayne as he was kind of like moving through and trying to sort through his life and his own experiences. I think writing comics was his therapy. (laughs) I don't know that that's wrong, honestly. He worked through a lot of his personality traits through these characters. He did. And writing's a great way to do that uh, writing is that thing where it's like you know it makes you feel better and also makes you hate yourself mm, it, it's a <laughs> it's a mighty hard thing to be a writer it's a lot of fine lines we and, wouldn't know no. we don't write ever <laughs> 
We didn't just do a choose your own adventure podcast yeah. sponsored by the Spartanburg County Public Libraries. You the mystery of the mole. Um, what? How long did Milestone last? In 1991, it started. Okay. And then in 1997, they stopped publication. An important thing to talk about in the history of Milestone is that they were constantly having to fight the image of quote unquote black comics. And yes. yes. Um, sorry. Go no, go ahead. <laughs> Something that Ian mentioned earlier is there was this idea that was floating around that because they these comics had all these black characters, that it was racist against white people. The thing is, is no one actually read it to find out. No. Yeah. It was just you know, people were just saying that, like they they didn't want to give it a chance. They didn't want to like they didn't want to accept that they could have main characters that weren't white. Right. <laughs> at the time yes. this is like this is the early 90s so yes um. Um, I did also wanted to point out a couple of the controversies that they ran into because um, there was not early on but kind of I guess I guess in the middle of Milestone existing there was another um, small comic group that was created by um, it was like another branch off similar to Milestone but they were publishing independently, whereas Milestone had been publishing through DC, if that's correct. They Are you talking deal. about Image Comics? I think so, out of Philly? I think so. Yeah. Yes. The, a lot of guys affiliated with Marvel, uh, Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, uh, Todd McFarlane, people like that. And they had gotten upset that, that they were, like, exploiting themselves or they were sellouts for publishing through a larger name, but that was the way to push this diversity and this like quality of character plus that was the first deal of its kind because they weren't they weren't dc comics and milestone had all of the rights and they could do whatever they wanted with the story it's just that dc had like the final say they right? they had the right to not publish anything that made them uncomfortable and that's yes. what Mc, that's what Dwayne wanted he said that was their saving grace was yeah. right they could write whatever they wanted and it either got published or it didn't but dc couldn't change any of their creative ideas right it, it's a huge thing <laughs> thank you for it goes it back down. to tackling those tough questions or tough problems that no one wanted to deal with they so they want to sw- yeah they want to sweep it under the rug and he's like no People are going to have sex. Teen pregnancy is going to happen. So let's put this in the background. Right. It's, it's a real thing. Like Dwayne and Milestone were like taking this idea that Marvel had about the world outside your window and really taking that to the next level. It's next evolution. Mm-hmm. So basically what happened because of that situation was McDuffie was like, well, obviously this isn't an issue of sex. Obviously this is an issue of black sexuality and so what they ended up doing is instead of having the background they just did like this this circle this like faded out black circle the heart around it. the heart it was a heart yeah yeah so it was just like their faces kissing and they put it on the inside cover maybe oh i think that that, yeah the full version on the inside yeah a lot of things like that yeah Um, a lot of that just constant pushback constantly battling the public's perceptions of what they thought they were versus what they actually are. Yeah. Uh, which was multicultural comics. Yep. yep. And uh, as we said before, Milestone uh, stopped publication in 1997, and that kind of like brought to a close this epoch of, of Dwayne's career. 
which is going to bring us into our next section where we talk about his, his move into animation and DC Comics. So after a series of false starts in the early 2000s, Static was adapted into an animation as Static Shock by Batman the Animated Series producer Alan Burnett. Story editor Stan Berkowitz offered McDuffie a writing job on the show at Alan Burnett's insistence. Like the comics, the show would often eschew traditional superhero action to try and teach a lesson. It would focus on difficult topics directly. Uh, so it was a very strong representation of Dwayne's milestone work. It was a, a solid continuation of that. Uh, bringing Dwayne onto the writing team was like a really great choice. Uh, he wrote a fair number of episodes uh, across the bulk of the series. Um, there was even uh, one episode, uh, an award-winning episode about gun violence. Uh, I believe that episode was just called Jimmy. I think you're right. And uh, it has one of the main characters, uh, Virgil's best friend, Richie, getting shot, um, actually shot in the episode and, and like really tackling the fallout of that. That's not like you see on TV. Uh, and Richie's recovering from that for a while after that. Like it, it's treated with gravity and seriousness. And that kind of became a hallmark for the show. Cohen, you've got a point. I do have a point. Um, I think the whole show is a lot like that. I was able to rewatch the entire first season and they don't beat around the bush at all. Like they just tackle these ideas head on. There's the episode about racism where we meet Richie's dad and he makes a lot of really nasty comments to Virgil, and then he has to work with Virgil's dad because Richie goes missing. He runs away, um, and they have to work together to go find him again. And, you know, by the end of the episode, he's like, all right, I can admit I was wrong. Yeah. And it's something, like, that simple that it's like you just need to acknowledge that your ideas about other people are incorrect and move on. Like, it doesn't have to be this, like, painful breaking up with my racism like <laughs> you know it, it doesn't um it it's a nice realistic grounded portrayal of, of growth you know yeah. like it doesn't have to be this this operatic you know uh breaking of, of this system it it just starts with these like you know what all my conceptions have been wrong about this i i can be better i will be better yeah i think that's definitely the strength of the show is showing the reality and humanizing all of these characters and these problems because the problems that the characters have are our problems too um <laughs> oh I, want, I also want to mention like some of the the changes they decided to make for tv i think i talked a little bit about this earlier yeah um in the comic it was originally frida and virgil and then in the show because they wanted to um they wanted to appeal more to like the young male audience Right. Um, they changed it to Richie and Virgil. Um, and, I mean, that didn't change a lot of things because they still were able to talk about, like, race relations. Uh, it wasn't as dramatic or violent as the comic got to in points, uh, but it was still able to, like, tackle a lot of the same issues. One of the things they decided to change that was really big was in the show, Virgil's mom has passed away. Yes. Yes, that's correct. Um, I, I don't remember their exact reasoning, but they do also talk about that a lot. Right. And they talk about, like, the struggle with grief and how everyone processes grief and loss differently. I can't remember which season it happens in, 
but they do have like a, a big a, a whole episode like dedicated to the season Walsh of the mom. one episode 13 thank you Colin. <laughs> uh, that would be the one and i remember i remember watching that as a kid and it just being this really poignant like character study and how the the loss of, of this person has just affected this family and how they all struggle with it in different ways and it's also that episode is awesome because Virgil is still learning from his mom just by like watching home videos. Like, cause the whole point of that episode was that they had a friend in class who was also a bang baby, but didn't know. And so when he was getting really upset, he was basically turning into this like Hulk character and destroying things. And none of Virgil's powers were working on him. And he eventually realized at the end of the episode that he had to like tire him out after watching a home video of his mom waiting for him as a kid to tire himself out from his tantrum. Mm. That's something that Dwayne realized over the course of his career in kids animation. It's like, you can make this super long preachy thing, you know, where it's like, this is a lesson and it's a good thing. You need to do it. But kids don't respond to that. They don't like internalize things that way. If you can like find a way to like incorporate that into the story where you've got these uh, characters they care about having fun is like an adventure and it, it's sort of like a, a subtle thing yeah. that's the way to go that's how you have messaging um one, sorry <laughs> to, to your point Cohen. one other thing i really enjoyed about this rewatch um was the relationship with kids and parents because mm. virgil is able to recognize and see that he he's really lucky that he has a really good relationship with his dad even though sometimes there's miscommunications and sometimes his dad gets mad or like he feels like there's he doesn't have enough trust from his dad um and that's something they acknowledge and tackle a lot and then they also talk about some of the relationships with the other kids and their parents like richie gets really upset with his dad when he shows his racism and there's another character who's the son of the mayor, I want to say, the really rich evil dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, in episode um, Junior. Junior, yeah. Um, where he's super upset because he doesn't have any respect or attention from his dad, and his dad is super mean to him. And Virgil thinks that, like, just because there is a parent-to-son relationship that they should be able to acknowledge their differences and work together and then that doesn't happen and he sort of has to acknowledge that not everyone's relationship is the same right it's pretty mature storytelling that you it wouldn't is. necessarily expect in a kids cartoon it is yeah uh, this was airing on kids wb at the time I it think. was it was uh, my favorite channel <laughs> So, I mean, it's really just a testament to Dwayne's storytelling capability that he was able to, like, sneak in these, like, complex ideas and thoughts into, like, kids programming and just, like, help shape young minds and move them in these positive directions. Mm -hmm. So, while Dwayne was working on this, um, eventually we had creative interference again and static was ultimately ended after a fourth season yes uh, around this time Dwayne was also getting work uh, on other shows uh, he was working on what's new scooby-doo and teen titans at the time he worked on some episodes for that and around this time uh, they were working on an animated adaptation of the justice league series it was a continuation of earlier dc animated universe shows like the the batman animated series and the superman animated series and they were working on an episode called The Brave and the Bold. It was a crossover episode, and uh, Rich Fogel and Paul Dini were the writers. 
and both of them were unable to kind of complete the script for the episodes. They brought in Dwayne to kind of work on it, and I, I believe the story, it, this is might be a little bit apocryphal, but I, I think Alan, um, Alan Berkowitz might have suggested Dwayne for this based off the experience of working on Static. I believe you're right. Word. I believe that is yeah, something that happened. His name out there. Yeah, because Dwayne was in Florida at the time. Like, he was nowhere near them, and, like, they reached out, and he... He worked on this, and this led to working on another set of episodes and another mm-hmm. set of episodes until we get to the point where in Justice League Unlimited, he is promoted to producer, and he's like got control of the writer's room, and they're working on these super serialized scripts. Yeah. Yes, yeah, So I was just going to add that um, McDuffie would later say that, quote, going from working on characters that I'd helped create to working on cultural institutions like Superman and Batman had been one of the biggest thrills of my professional life, end quote. And he pushed hard to make sure that the League was seen as individual characters, like you had said earlier. You could put a line in any of them, and you wouldn't, couldn't tell a difference. So I thought that that was cool seeing how he brought the individualism to Justice League and the success he had with creating backstories for those characters helped land him the job with uh, Justice League Unlimited. For sure. And gosh, I've watched both Justice League series like so many times. And just the the character work they do over the course of of both shows. I mean, it's just really profound. You get so invested in everybody and their journey. And then Unlimited, the cast just balloons to this huge, huge number of characters. But they still find a way to have like these little character moments. And they kind of make you fall in love with these like superheroes of lesser renown. Like Booster Gold, for example, um, has a, a really strong episode. Uh, the question becomes a fan favorite character. Um, and I'd read that them being 30 minute episodes helped build the characters. You couldn't mess around with any of the unwanted stuff. You could get just down and dirty into the character. And That's right. So Ian, to, to what you were saying, that's true. Uh, between the two Justice League series, the first set was kind of characterized by having these multi-part sagas, two and three part stories whereas Justice League Unlimited became much more uh, individualized while telling a, a long-form story arc in the background. So you'd have like these one-off stories, like the, the greatest story uh, never told with Booster Gold. Uh, a lot of stuff with uh, the question investigating this political corruption through the government. Uh, there's an episode where uh, the question and Huntress are like on a date and they're trying to oppose Black Canary and Green Arrow over the course of it. And so there was some structural changes as well, correct? Going from an hour long episode to a 30 minute episode, they could get more in depth with the characters since they were introducing all these new characters and they wouldn't be kind of lost in the mix. That's right. Like because it's just 30 minutes, you're doing like the standalone thing. You're, you're digging into those that handful of characters you've got in the episode, that two or three. Sure. Um, the way that they accomplished this is they took one of the original League members and then they'd throw in like two new ones and they'd like hang out for the course of the episode, go on a mission, have an adventure, that sort of thing. Okay. But it's, it's genius and it really like let McDuffie like hone in on what he wanted to focus on. I was on. reading where they were saying that the Justice League is very 1950s and outdated and McDuffie just came in and totally revamped the whole series. Right. He made sure that everyone had a defined personality and voice 
And uh, that's something that the DC characters get criticized for a lot because they were made in this time where it's like everyone's like just straight laced and perfect. Mm -hmm. And you're just like a a colorful costume with superpowers. Unlike the Marvel guys, like everybody has like this this angst and clearly defined struggle. What I like in um, in the Justice League animated series, not the unlimited, um, I think it's Fury. With the Amazon. Yes. So there we have kind of like a challenge of first wave feminism and then like a, a more modern yes. version. Because that's one of the two episode series that McDuffie worked on, correct? Yes. Uh, Fury was one. Uh, Brave and the Bold was another set. I can't remember the whole breakdown because there's some that were two, par- two or three partners. He might have contributed to, to one, but not the whole set. Uh, Star-Crossed, the big like series finale for the main one. I think he contributed to one of the parts, but maybe didn't necessarily work on all three. Or at least receive credit, uh, a lion's yeah. share of credit for all three. But yeah, always trying to work in these really cool ideas, like showcase a variety of viewpoints. Uh, work in really complex ideas for like the younger viewers. Um, it's just a, a testament to Dwayne's ability as a storyteller, just how, how much of a genius he was. I mean, you really see it start to take shape here. And while this was going on, uh, Dwayne was also kind of brought in to kind of pitch ideas for the Ben 10 show. And he revealed initially he'd been brought in to consult on the original format, which was where Ben and his uh, sister and grandfather were just traveling around in an RV. Yeah. Uh, At that time, it was just going to be Ben transforming into like superheroes or like other versions of himself. And then Dwayne kind of fell off the project and they revamped it into Aliens. For the second series, Alien Force, they brought Dwayne back on in full and he got to supervise and really like bring a lot of his strengths that he'd honed over Static and Justice League to bear on the Ben 10 universe. So after the success of season three, of Ben 10 Alien Force? Alien, yes. Alien it, Force is two and Omni versus three. Isn't that right? So the way they break it up is They're saying series. classic Ben? So like yeah, the first <laughs> the first was like Ben 10. Yeah. Um, and that was like the first series. Now there might have been like a couple of seasons of that, that yes. series. Yes, yes. Then Alien Force would have been season three, three. but was series two. Got okay. it. Okay, so the next, okay. So with Ben 10 Alien Force, McDuffie really um, went ahead and made the show stronger, like you were saying, with the uh, DC-style animation and all that good stuff. But what unfortunately was working against him was the fact that the original Ben 10 show was created for younger kids, and it was created solely to sell toys. Well, when Ben 10 Alien Force came around and those kids got a little bit older, although it had a huge viewership, they weren't selling as many toys. So the executives came back to McDuffie and said that we want you to go back to how it used to be, where there's no character arcs, there's no character development, everyone's kind of zany, nothing's really taken seriously. Right. And Mm -hmm. that kind of started to ruin the show and they lost a lot of viewers that they had from when McDuffie was writing. Right. Uh, 
it was just so sudden there was like whiplash like all of a sudden ben was behaving more like he did in series one and it's exactly like all these uh seasons of character development he had under the alien force series like it was just undone with no explanation it was weird yeah and cohen you said you had a favorite episode not exactly a favorite episode i when i was a kid i watched the original ben 10 when it became Alien Force and Omniverse, I was older and I was like, yeah, I'm not interested anymore. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. <laughs> that was too, so too cool, cool for Benton. <laughs> but there is an episode that I was researching for this podcast where McDuffie wanted to talk about how he was upset about Guantanamo Bay and how this this prison basically was was happening right under our noses and people were not getting... They were not getting the treatment they deserved. They were not. They were being charged for like nothing. I mean, there was a lot of things wrong. No trial, just no trial without sentence. Yes, that's what I was trying to say. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so he writes an episode with Area Fifty One that is meant to represent Guantanamo Bay. And there's an alien there who like has a family and has a history and shouldn't be there or like. He'd been there for 50 years, I think. 50 years. And eventually, like, breaks out and attacks the warden. And he's, he, like, begs Ben to kill him. Like, it's a really dark episode for, yeah. for a children's show. Of course, Ben doesn't. But it just sort of brings to light the horrors of reality and how we can kind of take those horrors and we see them as surreal. We see them as something like an alien in a jail when in reality it's, it's much closer to home. That's right. Yeah. Actual, it was a pretty powerful yeah. episode. Yeah. Just masterclass storytelling from McDuffie as usual. Yes. He's sure. fired on all cylinders. He's really getting to do what he wants to do. That's the kind of powerhouse storytelling you can expect from him. Uh, just speaks volumes to, to Dwayne. So to kind of wrap up Dwayne's time in animation, which unfortunately also kind of dovetails with the, the last days of Dwayne's life, we have to talk about Dwayne's work in the, the DC animated original movies sector of, of Warner Brothers Entertainment. So while he was working on Ben 10, uh, McDuffie would also be contract he would be contracted to write scripts for DC's like line of original animated movies. Uh, these were standalone, non-continuity features. They'd run for um, an hour and 10 minutes, hour and 15. Um, he wrote several, uh, Justice League Crisis on Two Earths, Justice League Doom. Um, the most important one and the last one that he would write would be the animated adaptation of the comic book All-Star Superman. And if it's cool with you guys, I'd like to kind of like wrap up this by kind of like digging into that a little bit and sort of discussing how that um, dovetails with McDuffie, his life. Please, yeah, go ahead. Do it. Okay. So All-Star Superman is my favorite Superman comic. It's a 12-issue maxi-series by Grant Morrison, a super talented writer. It's set outside the main DC continuity, and the idea behind it was to have the ultimate Superman story, a streamlined retelling of Superman where everything is unified, everything makes sense. But in the first issue, Superman receives a terminal uh, exposure to solar radiation, and it's revealed that he's dying. He has a year to live. And over the course of this year, 
he is going to perform his, his 12 greatest labors, the things he'll be remembered for. So over the course of the series, Superman is doing all these huge and wonderful things, big things and small things, and you're kind of operating with the knowledge that you know his, his life is finite, that by the end of this thing, he's going to be gone. The world will be without a Superman. Uh, it's very, very powerful. Uh, and it goes from things like, uh, him having an arm wrestling match with Atlas and Samson to uh, a flashback where he is trying to save his dad. He realizes that his adopted father, John Kent, is having a heart attack, and he's on the other side of the world, and he's flying so fast his hair catches on fire, and he's just saying, I can do anything. I, I can save anyone, it, but he doesn't. He doesn't make it in time, and it's like a lesson in coming to grips with the limits of your own power, and uh, so it, it's an amazing story, uh, powerhouse read. I highly recommend it if you're interested in this sort of thing. Uh, this was the comic that Dwayne was going to adapt, and I think that's significant for a lot of reasons. Um, something that we haven't touched on as much about Dwayne is that the men in his uh, family had a very short life expectancy. Uh, his father passed away at 48. His older brother passed away before him. And he was predeceased by his younger brother, Daryl, the same year that he passed away. So his whole life, uh, Dwayne was kind of like operating with this idea that, you know, his, his time on Earth was limited, even more so than, than for regular people. Uh, you're, this impending mortality kind of colored everything. Some of his friends said that Dwayne had... Uh, Insomnia. He just he wouldn't sleep. He, he'd always be up working. Um, when he married the, his wife, Charlotte, the love of his life, that's when people say that he started to smile in pictures. If you look at the before and after, it's a noticeable uh, transition. And Dwayne died four days after the All-Star Superman premiere. Um, and I just, I, I wonder, you know, was... And taking this on, was it sort of like a cathartic thing for him? You know, uh, him as this this figure who's doing these impossible things, taking on these these monumental tasks uh, for for the world to try and make things better for everybody, all the while knowing that his time is is so so short. Um, she said that you know it was just it was so hard to watch it with him, and and now that he's gone, she just can't bring herself to do it. And um, there's a scene in the movie that isn't in the comic that uh that Dwayne wrote and she says it's it's super impactful and it's a scene between superman and um martha they're visiting uh, his dad's grave martha is his adopted mother and they're just kind of uh talking about um about the loss and how he taught clark to be the person the world would need him to be when or to be the man he would need to be when, when he was gone so that he could function after Jonathan passed. And um, I just wonder, too, about his dad because his dad passed early and there was nothing to wait. You know, there's just so many parallels, and I, I just feel like this is probably just such a, such a huge thing for him. And, and you wouldn't know it unless you had this deep dive into Dwayne and his personal life. It's, it's just super impactful for me, just super moving. Um, uh, sorry to bring the mood. I mean, unfortunately, you know, yeah. he, he passed he 49, away at 49. Right? Yeah. He was just one year older than his dad. Um, it was like in the 2010s, wasn't it? it was 2011, like, yeah. 2011, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
and it seemed like he was at the height of his powers. You know, like, know. what more could he have done if, if he'd had more time? Imagine the world if he'd lived another year, even. Yes, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, but uh, to transition and, and put things on a better note, Dwayne did leave a lasting and powerful legacy. And I, I think that's something that we were going to talk about to kind of like bring us out of this dark let's place. Let's lighten the mood. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's talk absolutely. about some hope. Yes, absolutely. Um, now, obviously, a lot of people have been inspired by Dwayne McDuffie and his work. But one person I really want to highlight is Kwanzaa Osajifo, which I hope I'm saying his name right. I did look at his Twitter. <laughs> um, You've he, made a fair attempt. I, I did. I tried to watch like video interviews, and the one guy that said his name just said it so fast that he was like obviously trying not to mispronounce it too. <laughs> right, right. But anyway, he's the author of the comic Black, which is about how a small percentage of the black community have superpowers. And the way that the FBI and the police have hidden this fact is through racism. Right. So basically they they like hid behind they hid these facts of the superpowers behind like all these racist ideals that we sort of have today. Gotcha. Okay. And I was able to read the first comic of it. It's really interesting. Um, and it breaks down these three different political groups. One, there's like the main people, the FBI, who's trying to hide it. And they will pretty much kill anyone who gets in their way. And I mean anyone. They like butchered a bunch of white dudes. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so. <laughs> so pretty rough stuff. Um, then there's this underground group of the people with superpowers who are trying to, trying to keep a, a secret to protect the rest of the world. Right. Because obviously the black people without powers can't protect themselves. Right. And if they find out, if the world finds out, they'll be like a craze and they're going to attack people at random. Or that's what they think. Right. And then there's another group of people, of the superpowered people, who want to be free. They want to be open with their superpowers. They want everyone to know. Uh, they don't care about like the anarchy that's going to ensue. Um, and so the conflict is between these three groups and, like, how do you, how do you deal with this situation? Right, right. Um, and so Kwanzaa, in an interview about Dwayne McDuffie, he talks about meeting him and interviewing with him. And it's a really interesting interview because he talks about how he wanted to work at Milestone, how he was like, this is where I have to be. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, his work seems like it'd be a natural fit for what they were working yeah, on. Yeah, obviously. Um, he didn't get the job at the time, but he mm. talks about how McDuffie was just so eager to like donate his time to people. Like they sat down and just talked about how the whole field works. He was he was just giving him advice. He was explaining like how to get an internship and how he should go finish his degree first. And he just he just gave all of this time to this stranger, basically. Wow. It just shows like how compassionate and kind McDuffie really was. For sure. Uh, just a, a giving person with a, a very generous spirit. And obviously it led to great things because that moment and milestone inspired Osa Jeffo to write comics and to get into the field. But, and John, you mentioned that there's some stuff coming out now in some movies and shows. Sure. So uh, Dwayne's work really does continue on. Milestone uh, is a huge part of DC Comics. Like, their characters have been integrated into the main DC universe over the years. 
Uh, they've popped up in animated adaptations of the DC Universe, like Young Justice, uh, Icon, and Rocket have both appeared in that. Icon, and uh, as a member of the Justice League, uh, Rocket is a member of the team with the other young DC characters. Static has also made appearances in later seasons. Uh, they're currently working on a live-action Static movie for HBO Max, which is super cool. I'm so excited. Uh, so that work definitely continues on. Damage Control, uh, as we said earlier, is a big part of the latest trilogy of Spider-Man movies. Um, in the comics and I think uh, even like one uh, Spider-Man animated series where Damage Control appeared, there was a character named Mac who was like the main foreman in tribute to Dwayne. Um, there's a brand new DC superhero character just from the last couple of years. She's going to be headlining her own show on the CW named Naomi. And her last name is McDuffie, and a tribute to Dwayne. So just his, his impact is still reverberating through the field and all the mediums that uh, build off of it. It's just a, an awesome and powerful thing. And we definitely saw it in the Marvel Universe, too, with, with all the Avengers movies and like Wakanda being expanded upon and becoming a part of, and Black Panther becoming a part of the main Marvel cast. For sure, for sure. It, um, the response to, to Black Panther has, has just been uh, staggering and enormous. Uh, it's one of the highest grossing movies of all time. Uh, it was his first movie. It's grossed over a billion dollars. Wow. Uh, just Black Panther is just a, a beloved part of, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe now. Um, yeah. It, it's, it's just it's incredible. Another thing that came about after... McDuffie's passing was the Dwayne McDuffie Award for Diversity in Comics. Um, so this award went from, I believe, 2016 to 2019. I'm not sure if it's on a hiatus or if if they decided to stop awarding it in 2019. But words. yes, because of <laughs> uh, the timing, uh, 2019 was the last year. COVID started in 2020. Yeah, we haven't been able to find any additional information on whether it's still a thing or not. Um, but I do have a couple of examples of people who are comics that have won the award in 2015, Miss Marvel by G. Willow Wilson and Adrian Alfana, and then in 2016, Miss Marvel again. Um, also, Moon Girl and the Devil Dinosaur by Brandon Montclair, Amy Reader, and Nacho Bustos, which sounds incredibly fun. Yes. I'll have to look into that one. Um, 2017. There was Amazing Forest by Ulysses Ferenas. I'm sorry if I'm butchering these names. <laughs> Eric Freitas. Uh, 2018 with The Once and Future Queen. And then 2019 with Exit Stage Left, The Snagglepuss Chronicles by Mark Russell and Mike Freehand. Um, and there's a lot of other ones, but those are just the ones that stood out to me. So Yeah, yeah. Um- Dwayne was the, the kind of power and creative force that we're going to be feeling his impact for a long time to come in big ways and small ways. I would absolutely agree. Um, before we end, I do want to go back to a little bit of McDuffie's life. Yes. Because he, re- he seemed like he was probably a really fun guy. For sure. Um, and he mentioned that his dream job was writing rom-coms. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just wish that we had gotten that part of his life. Um, he talks a lot about his his experience learning how to write screenplays and writing for animation. And what he did is he taught himself by transcribing Woody Allen's stand-up. 
This is before all the bad stuff with Woody Allen. Right. But like right. he just taught himself by writing down what people already had made and learning from that experience. And, wow. Um, right? Can you imagine? <laughs> self-taught and, and just such an accessible way. Uh, I mean, he just sat down and just started transcribing a thing yeah. that anybody could have access to. Basically, he like learned how to teach himself. <laughs> Again, and I, we've said it numerous times, Dwayne was a genius. An absolute, like a man before his time. For sure. And gosh, it just, it truly comes through in these instances. You can really tell this, this was a, a gifted person. So something I overheard Anna and John talk about earlier was how McDuffie had to make himself smaller, sort of for the comfort of others. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that came up in conversation was um, McDuffie had a kind of a practice that came out after he had passed. His wife told people where he would he wrote so much faster than everyone else. Um, so a script that would he said took him three days, which was already faster than it would go for other people. Right. Yeah. Um, actually took him one or two days. So he would write it in a night and then not submit it for the next two days, which could be a clever ploy to get an extra couple days off and still be so much better than everyone else. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) Often people who are really successful, Mm -hmm. um, who don't necessarily fit the mold for what success is in a given industry, have to make the people around them more comfortable with with their talent. Right. Um, and we know that comics and the comic industry was for young white boys. Yeah, for a long time it was. Um, and for a long time was almost exclusively written by white men. So McDuffie coming in being incredible, an incredible talent. Um, he was not only a great writer, but he was very efficient at it. And a lot of the people who ended up going into milestone with him talk about how he was such a good mentor and how Mm. he always gave them the space to explore their own creativity um in milestone it was very productive and it was giving creative space that's where the um letter came from was a letter to marvel editors he was constantly having to tiptoe around and like call out the racism in marvel's writing so it seems a little less safe Mm -hmm. for him to exist as he was in marvel not to mention he was very tall. We've already mentioned that he had a very intimidating presence, even though he was, based on what everyone has said, very kind and compassionate and wasn't threatening at all. But if he just walked into a room, people might be afraid of him just by looking at him. I know that he once talked about getting pulled over by the police because of the car he was driving. And, you know, early, like in... I don't know what year it was, but in the 1900s, that happened a lot more often because not a lot of black folk were driving nice cars. So they didn't believe it was his car. So just like his presence, because of who he was, how he looked, he had to make himself, he had to humble himself in a way to be safe in the workplace, to be respected. Again, Dwayne, uh, he was he was kind of a superhero. You know, he didn't do it for the for the glory. He he just he wanted to to make an impact and a difference in the world. I think we can 
easily say that Dwayne McDuffie is our superhero. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. I I don't think anyone at the table would dispute that. So to bring things to a close, I I want to uh, introduce our our quote for today, our closing quote. Uh, This one comes from Dwayne's father, actually, and it's a very important quote to Dwayne. It's something that he actually put into his Deathlock series, and it's kind of like uh, a guiding principle for Dwayne. Um, or was throughout his whole life and the quote is you've got to do what's right not what's easiest I love it <laughs> I love it <laughs> it's, it's, it's simple but it's, it's very it's powerful simple, but yeah, um, you're right, yeah. Just, you're right. It's, it's the kind of code a, a superhero would have and it what was Dwayne McDuffie if not a superhero very Uncle Ben it very does, Uncle oh, oh man, man. Yeah. yes and it's sure. also it also like um, invites anyone to be a superhero. It does. Yeah, which I think was their point in my, making Milestone Media, is that anyone can be a superhero, you know, based on making the right choices. Yeah, it's not easy. With that, uh, we're going to close episode four. So thank you for listening. That's right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.